Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's Live in the Bream with host of Fox News at Night, Shannon Bream. All right, this week on Live in the Bream, we have a brand new member of Congress who's got an incredible story of his own. And since he's arrived here and been sworn in, has lived through some of the toughest, darkest moments of our country's history. Um, So we want to talk to him about all of that and kind of where we go from here. Uh, Congressman Byron Donalds of the Naples, Florida area joins us. Welcome, Congressman. How you doing, Shannon? I'm very good. Listen, I we had you on the show last week, um, the day, unfortunately, these riots happened at the Capitol, and I'd been reading about you, and you're from my home state. Um, we both went to Florida State. We have a lot of stuff in common, and I was just so inspired by your story. Um, you've overcome a lot of things, and I think sometimes people look at members of Congress and think, oh, you know, they were student body president when they were, you know, 15 years old, and they went to all the right schools and made all the right choices. But you're very open about the fact that um, your life wasn't perfect. You went through a lot of challenges, and yet here you are now, a member of the House of Representatives. Um, tell us a little bit about your path. Well, I mean, look, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, originally. You know, as my household was, you know, we were poor. It was just my mom and me and, you know, my younger sister. My older sister had kind of went off to uh, go to college when I was, when I was younger. And so, you know, we just really struggled in life. I mean, life was never easy, but, you know, my mother, to her, education was everything. She wanted to make sure that we got a great education. So she just sacrificed everything in her personal life financially to make sure we got a great education. Um, So when I was in first grade, uh, they wanted to put me on Ritalin because I wouldn't sit still in class. You know, I I was that kid that just knew the answers too quickly and, my mom was like, well, speed him up, do more things for him. And they're like, well, we really, we really can't do that. So what we're thinking is just we give him this, and that way he'll just be more calm. And that wasn't good enough for her. So she pulled me out, put me in, you know, uh, a private school, which was a big sacrifice for her. And, you know, she just really stressed education. Like, it was critical for her, critical for all of us in order to really get out of the inner city and be successful. So that's kind of how it started. Then in college... You know, I was uh, I was actually at FAMU first for three years, and then I went to FSU for three years, and I graduated from FSU. But even in college, you know, it was like the first time I was on my own. I was having a lot of struggles. Uh, got in trouble with the law. I was arrested for possession of marijuana. I was arrested for felony theft. And so I'm 20 years old, and I'm, like, looking at myself in the mirror, like, how did I get you? Like, what, what am I doing? And really, it was just that I was just making a series of just poor decisions. And I couldn't really blame anybody. It was all on me. And so I just looked at myself and purposed in myself that I was never going to end up in a place like this again. And then I just started, you know, putting one step in front of the other, you know, paying more attention in school, getting back on track academically, you know, changing out a lot of friends, you know, really being focused on living a a life um, that's pleasing to everybody and pleasing to God. And then life just took off from there. 
Yeah, I loved in reading about your story. You talk about Erica, who's now your wife, uh, and you were yeah. you all were friends um, back in college. She invited you to church, and that was something that kind of a seed that got planted with you. I loved reading the story about when you were working at Cracker Barrel because I think I know the Cracker Barrel. I've eaten there many times. If it's the one right off I ten by the Ramada Inn. And um, you tell a story there about some women that you met that you had um, waited on their table and kind of a life-changing conversation you had with them. Um, What does the issue of faith mean for you? What difference has it made in your life? I mean, it's been everything. I mean, really to go back to that time when I was like just trying to examine my life and figure out how I was going to repair a life that, you know, I was struggling. I was, you know, really going down the wrong road. And, you know, my wife or my girlfriend at the time, you know, Erica, she was just like, well, actually, she wasn't even my girlfriend at the time. We had broken up, but we were still friends. And she was just like, she was starting to get her life in order. She started going to church. And then she asked me if I would go to church with her one day. And I said, yeah. And, you know, for anybody who knows, when you go to church that first time, it seems like the pastor, like, called your mom and got your whole story and is talking, like, directly <laughs> at you. Like, that's how I felt. I was like, man, how does God know anything about me? Who told him? But it was at that point, it was really just starting to go to church. I started to really focus on the things of, of God, the things that God had for me, his beliefs, um, and who I could become. And then working at Cracker Barrel, I actually waited on, it's actually three consecutive tables. And it happened all, like, within two months of each other. So the first table was just a lady and her husband who were traveling. And I walk up, and she sees my name on the apron. I was praying about you in the car. Lord said I was going to meet a bike, and you're the one I was praying for. So I just want to let you know that God loves you. Like, okay, lady, thank you. You know, I'm just like, I'm here to wait on your table. But so that, that, so that was cool. The second table was actually a lady. So it's a lady and her husband, they were traveling. And she had she she gave me the the little poem that she wrote. She was like, I was praying in the car, and the Lord brought brought you to me, and I wrote down this little poem and this little story about you, and I wanted you to have it, and I just want you to know God has a huge planet in front of you for your life. And I was just like, wow, okay. I'm like, this is weird. Like, I've had two tables like this in a month that have done this. And then the third table that I actually talk about most of all, I was waiting on this. It was like a tent top, and uh, they were coming back from a revival. And it was, you know, 11 black ladies and one black pastor. And so I just waited on their table and just did what I normally do. And we interacted a little bit, but not too much. But when you have a table that big, anybody that's waited tables, it takes them a while to get up and leave. So I was done servicing them, and I was on the on the on the server line rolling silverware. And when I was rolling silverware, like I just my body was there, but my mind and my spirit was not. And you know, the Lord was really dealing with me. And you know, I have you know people who worked with me. They were coming up. They're like, "Man, are you okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine." And so I just went out. The Lord was like, go out and look for those people. So I went out to the dining room, and they were gone. And so if you know Cracker Barrel, you can see, like, everything is, like, glass front, so you can see out into the parking lot. And so I looked out, and I saw them getting in their van. So I walked out real quick, and my manager was like, where are you going? I was like, man, I need a minute. So I just went out there, and the last lady was getting on the bus, and she turned and looked over her shoulders. She was just like, baby, can I help you? And I was just like, you know, man, the Lord is telling me to stop running. Just saying to stop running for me. So they all piled out of the van. And I always get emotional when I tell this story because it was just so real. Even today, it's still real to me. But they hop out of the van and they just pray for me right there. 
and, you know, I give my life to Christ. That was uh, actually September 1st, 2001, and I gave, my, I gave my life to Christ then, and I just, I've never been the same since. Yeah, I loved reading that story because I can just picture you there you running out of the restaurant. I can see the parking lot, and I just picture you going to find these folks who are probably so happy um, that you came to them uh, and so happy to pray with you. And um, it's just a, a beautiful thing to see that, you know, we all go through trouble, make mistakes, and um, none of us is perfect. That's why we need redemption. And so the fact that you share so much of it openly, um, I think is probably really inspiring to other people. Um, and I noted that you you weren't successful your first time around uh, in a campaign, um, but you went back, you ran for the Florida House, were successful there, uh, and now have ended up in Congress. And we talked uh, about kind of your arrival here and what a crazy time it's been. But I want to look back to the beginning early on in your campaign this last time around. You said this in a video, you said, I'm everything the fake news media tells you doesn't exist. A strong, Trump-supporting, gun-owning, liberty-loving, pro-life, politically incorrect black man. And you've talked about how you showed up uh, years ago at Tea Party rallies. Um, what drew you to that? And, and kind of what was your political evolution? So, you know, growing up, we didn't care about politics. I was always apolitical. Like, at the time, I was a registered Democrat, but I didn't really care about politics at all. I never, I never really watched the news. Like, my wife, she would watch the news more than I would. And so this is actually during the financial collapse. And for everybody, you know, people listening to the podcast, <clears throat> my background is in finance. So I'm a, I'm a finance guy by trade. I'm a financial advisor. I've worked in commercial banking. I've worked in insurance. So, like, I've actually, you know, I've worked in the real world. I've had to go out here and, and live it. And so it was during the financial collapse, and I was doing research on what was happening with our financial system for my insurance firm that I was working for. And what actually came on was the House Financial Services Committee one day, and I decided to watch that committee to try to get more information before I reported back to the owners of my company. And I watched that committee, and I was really, I was just pissed because the members didn't, just didn't know what they were talking about. And it was frustrating to me because at the time, I'm, you know, I'm 28, 29 years old, and I'm in the career, I'm learning and trying to grow every day, and you have people who are supposed to be, like, leading the country, and they have no idea what's going on in our economy. And so that frustrated me and actually got me paying attention to politics for the first time in my life. I remember my wife came home one day and I'm watching the news and she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just watching the news. She's like, you never watch the news, but you're watching it now. And I was like, because I just want to see who these people are. Like, I'm trying to learn this stuff. And, you know, you know, Shannon, no disrespect to, you know, to your career, but, you know, at the time cable news just, you know, it, it frustrated me because I just felt that there was never an opportunity to really dig into a lot of issues. So I actually started reading books on political philosophy so the first book I ever read was The Law by Frederick Bastiat. I read that. I've read Alexis de Tocqueville. I've read, uh, you know, Democracy in America. I've read Locke. I've read Montesquieu. And so I started reading about political philosophy because I wanted to understand why our government was structured the way it was structured. Like, that was of real importance to me. Like, why is it the way it is? So I wanted to know that first. And then once I kind of figured that out and got a basis of like political philosophy and the different types of government, then it was easy for me to look back at modern news and be like, okay, well, that doesn't make sense. This makes sense. And that's really how I got on the path to becoming a conservative. 
Yeah, and I noted that you've talked about too, um, you do what I do, and I think a lot of us in the media do or should do if we don't, is that you listen to a lot and read a lot of other resources too that are kind of all over the spectrum. And I think that's important for people, whatever their ideas or political um, ideology is and to help shape their ideas is um, to listen to all different sides, to figure out why you believe what you believe. Um, and you having settled where you have uh, in the conservative spectrum in the GOP to watch uh, other news outlets and to listen to other people and read other books that um, frame the other side. So you know where people are coming from. And um, I just think it's really important and impressive that you took the time to do that because all of us really have an obligation if we're going to be engaged um, to know uh, what's out there and and why you believe what you believe. So um, it's it's a good ongoing practice that I'm sure to this day that you continue. Um, let me ask you about this. The, the GOP this time around had greater success in the House than they were predicted to do. Um, they had a lot of um, women join. Uh, they had a lot of people from different diverse backgrounds join and win seats in the House. Um, what is your thought on the GOP trying to become more diverse and appeal to uh, a broader spectrum of voters out there? Well, I think it's funny. If, if you, I know, you know, because our name is the Grand Old Party, um, and yes, a lot, of our, a lot of our members in leadership happen to be, you know, much older than I am. And, yeah, they happen to be men, like the vast majority. But I think if you look at the Republican Party, at the young members, the members who are serving in legislative bodies in state capitals, um, you know, where they have an opportunity to come up if a, if a member retires or if they're in a state like mine in Florida where you have term limits, when you look at the, the, the GOP at the state level and even the local level, it's actually quite diverse. Um, you, have a lot, you have a lot more younger people who are, who've come into the party. I, and you have a lot more people, you know, who are of Latin American descent who've come into the party. And you're starting to see, like, a new rise of, of black Republicans, you know, coming to the party. And so I, I don't think it's a matter of that, you know, the, the GOP was trying to do that or pushing, making efforts to do that. I know the recruitment committees have done that. The recruitment chairs at the RNC have been made, made a concerted effort to do that. But the message and the principles of liberty, the, philo- the philosophies of limited government, that appeals to everybody. And I think what you're seeing is you're starting to see different types of candidates actually step up and run. And I think that, you know, what, what you're seeing with the freshman class in the 117th Congress, that's the new GOP. Like, that's what people are going to start seeing from the Republican Party going forward. Like, I don't think, I don't look at me or a lot of the ladies who came in with me, I don't view it as a fluke or as a one-off. I think that's what you're going to see more and more of. Because if you look at the people who are serving in state capitals, they look more like the freshman class in the 117th than actually the entire Republican conference in Congress. Live in the Bream continues in a moment. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's only been a matter of a couple weeks ago uh, that you all were sworn in. And within just a matter of days, uh, you found yourself in a situation in the Capitol where we've had members um, talk about the fact that they were afraid for their lives. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was happening as it was playing out. Um, There was a lot of chaos and a lot of fear. Uh, Tell us a little bit about um, January 6th for you and your staff. So, I mean, look, January 6th was... It, honestly, the day was 
not eerie, but you knew it was going to be highly contentious. And so you kind of, I think everybody kind of came in already a little guarded because, you know, the objecting to electoral college votes is a serious matter. Like it's not something to be taken lightly. And if you're going to do that, like I did, um, you better have really good, well-founded reasons for why you're going to object. Um, I was at the president's rally earlier that day. I was there. Um, the crowd was honestly like a typical Trump rally crowd. Never got any inclinations that anything was going to happen or, or anything like that. The speeches were your typical Trump rally speeches. You know, they were, you know, hard hitting, but that's probably the wrong word to use in this context. But they were just, they were just strong rally speeches, tough speeches. Um, but that's what it's always been. I don't think I really understood how the gravity of the situation until I could, so there were the news reports were saying that the, that, you know, the rioters had breached the security perimeter and were at the door and that you could hear the banging. And so at that point, you know, I think everybody's entire focus changed, especially when they got inside the Capitol. The one thing I was trying to tell people about that day is that when the Capitol was breached, the members, amongst the membership, and I mean, we have massive disagreements. We had one today, but over impeachment. But at that point, the members stopped being Republicans and Democrats, and they, they were just people trying to make sure that everybody could get to safety. And I think that, you know, that's the, the biggest thing I probably take from that day. The second biggest thing I take from it is the fact that we weren't going to let the Capitol just be taken. Like every, all members, Republicans, Democrats, it didn't matter, were, were actually very focused on retaking the Capitol and finishing the business that we came there to start. Whether you supported certain states or didn't, everybody wanted to make sure that we finished that, that business. And so, you know, the Capitol Police, I mean, unfortunately, in the media, they're getting run through the ringer because somebody, you know, it's one of those things people got to blame somebody. Those guys did everything they could and then some to make sure that the members were safe. I mean, you can replace glass, you can replace furniture, but you can't replace somebody's life. And they did everything to make sure that you keep everybody safe. And they have my undying love and support for what they did, even though some people are trying to throw them under the bus. But the reality is, is that it was a very scary time. Uh, that's not something anybody wanted to see. Um, but at the same time, you can see the humanity of the members when it's not about politics anymore and it's about you know, frankly, being safe. And then the second part is, is you can see the courage of members on both sides to say, no, we're going back. And that, I think, was like a unanimous decision by everybody. No, we're going back to the floor. We're going to finish what we started. Um, that's what I take away from January 6th. Yeah, and you talk about the fact that what the business was was to um, go through the electoral votes from the states and get those counts in. Um, you talked about the fact that you're among those who objected and you had good reasons for it. How do you respond now to corporations who say they'll never donate to members who objected again, um, that people essentially should be shunned and maybe expelled? Um, we talked about it that night that you have a fellow member who's called for those who uh, question the electoral vote counts to be expelled, that you um, some have said, uh, you know, you're a danger to your country or a traitor or to the Constitution. How do you respond to these calls that basically you should no longer be a, a part of polite society or ever teach at a certain school or be on a board because of your objection? I think it's wrong. I think that, you know, the calls by some of the Democrats that members should be removed just makes no sense at all. There's not a member in the Capitol who wanted what happened on January 6th to happen. Not one. 
Furthermore, you can't even go and look at members' comments and say that they incited that kind of division or incited the insurrection or incited the violence or however you want to call it. There's not one member of Congress who, through their rhetoric, would, would, have, wanted, would have wanted to do that. And I think this is the sad thing that we're starting to see is that, you know, everybody was, everybody was afraid. Everybody was scared. What happened was wrong. But now the political recriminations because of it are what's inexcusable, especially because, I mean, look, to be frank, we have members on the other side of the aisle who have said things that have fomented unrest. And I'm not even going to talk about the riots from last summer. I'm going to go as far back as 2016 or 2017 when Steve Scalise was shot. Steve Scalise was shot. He almost died because of the, the rhetoric of Bernie Sanders saying that if Republicans had passed their health care bill, that people were going to die. I would never blame Bernie for the fact that one of his supporters almost killed, literally almost killed a member of Congress, the minority whip. I would have put that burden on him because Bernie didn't tell that person to go do that. And he didn't orchestrate a scheme for somebody to go do that. He was using inflamed rhetoric, and this was the result. So I think it's important for the Democrats to remember some of their own history in this and not be so quick to point fingers at other members who just have very vehement and strongly held political views. Okay, so we're trying to go out on a lighter note. So let me ask you, Cracker Barrel, uh, best item on the menu. I like to go for the old timers breakfast. I don't know about you. You know, people sometimes when you work there, you don't want to eat there because you see the food all the time. Um, What's the best (laughs) thing on the menu? So I'm going to have to split it because... Um, what I'm going to say is the thing I love to eat most on the menu is the fried catfish. It's Ooh, amazing. Really, really yum. good. The fried catfish, for people listening, go get it. Thank me later. You're going to love it. For <laughs> breakfast, I got to go Mama's Pancake Breakfast. They just All do right. it right every single time. With hash brown casserole. I was going to say, does that include you know a, a side of the hash brown casserole? Because you really can't do breakfast without that at Cracker Barrel. Not sure. Do you know they make a loaded hash brown casserole now with bacon and all the extra stuff? Well, see, yes. this, is, this no. is incredible information we're getting as a part of this podcast. What does that involve? We're breaking news. It's the hash brown casserole with bacon and I think something else that I forget. But just go ahead and do it. We're breaking news right now. Okay. You'll, Next you'll time I'm back it. home uh, to see my family in Tallahassee, we'll have that. Okay. And um, I know you are a big basketball fan. Have you found a place yet to, to work out or play in D.C.? No, but I'm getting close. And then once I do, then I'll definitely be hitting the courts. Um, I, basketball is like a haven for me. That's kind of where I get away from everything. And so that and working out, are, those are just my havens. Well, and when we have the loaded cash browns, we have to do the workouts. So it all works together. Uh, Congressman yes. Byron Donalds, it is great to chat with you. Uh, we will watch as you return to your work there on the Hill in a very contentious time and wish you all the best at uh, finding common ground where you can and moving things together for the American people. Uh, we know you're committed to that. Thank you, sir. Listen, thank you, Shannon. It was a great call. We'll do it again sometime. Okay. See you soon. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.